This next species has virtually vanished from the wild, but while they may have exited their natural habitats, they have been domesticated into our hearts and homes. The following clip is an exclusive look into their mating behavior called flirting. I love that after I spend a day with you, I can still smell your perfume on my clothes, and I love that you are the last person I want to talk to before I go to sleep at night. And it's not because I'm lonely, and it's not because it's New Year's Eve. I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. Breathtaking, isn't it? Thanks, David. I'll take it from here. Domestication is the process of adapting wild plants and animals for human use. But what about the domestication of humans for human use? In this episode, we'll dive into the riveting world of the domestication syndrome hypothesis, tackling the what, why, and how of domestication, with an inside look into how we may have actually domesticated ourselves. I'm Sasha, and you're listening to State of the Pod. Let's start with the brief history of domestication, just slightly outside of how you might be familiar with it in terms of plants and animals. There once lived a man named Dmitry Belayev, who really loved fur coats. I quite like that name, Dmitry. Okay, moving on. For Soviet Russia, fox farming was an excellent source of foreign currency following World War II. But working with these wild animals was no easy task. Luckily, Belayev had an idea. In the same way he could breed certain foxes together for desirable fur colors, he could breed only those foxes that were least fearful and least aggressive when approached by humans. You don't say. Yep, and Belayev did just that. The offspring from the first generation of friendly foxes were similarly bred for friendliness, and the cycle continued for decades, even after Belayev had passed. What ensued was astonishing. The foxes began to behave like dogs. This turned into this. They wagged their tails, whined, whimpered, and would even lick the humans. Just like Fido. Yes, just like Fido. It says here on your fact sheet that the coat color began to change as they domesticated the foxes. That's right, but more on that later. We're not done with behavioral changes. But Sasha, I thought you brought me in to talk about humans. Which brings me to my next point. Now you may be wondering how this all relates to humans. I am. It seems like we're the ones doing all the domesticating. Well, you're not wrong. But you see, we've also been domesticating ourselves. Going even farther back, approximately 600,000 years before Believ and his foxes, you'll see early humans did not have a particular fondness for bullies. I hate bullies. Exactly, everyone does, even our ancestors, which is why they excluded them from the breeding pool. Much like how we selectively breed for higher milk-yielding cows or scrunched up faces in pugs, early humans selectively bred against overly aggressive and alpha mates, as Wrangham calls it. Wrangham? Yes, Richard Wrangham, a biological anthropologist at Harvard University. Wrangham goes further on to state, there was active selection, for the very first time, against the bullies and the genes that favored their aggression. If you're an early human and you run into an aggressive brute who wants to take all your food, he's going to approach you, beat you up, and leave with your food. 
I'd like to think I'd put up more of a fight. I hope so too. But in a one-on-one -on -one scenario, the aggressor has the upper hand. Nonetheless, humans are social. We form communities. So now when the brute comes to beat you up and take your food, you got your buddies there that say, not so fast. He may come for their food next. Exactly. So now with this shared goal in this coalition, working together becomes more important for survival, more than just sheer aggression. The big, strong, mean guy can't take on multiple individuals or the whole group. If he tries, he'll be run down and killed or ostracized before he even gets the chance to mate and pass on this aggression. So, larger communities rely on cooperation and friendliness to deal with individuals who act aggressively. It is just like the foxes. The more aggressive mates were excluded from the breeding pool. Mm-hmm. Studies out of the University of Milan have gone as far as targeting a specific gene involved in this decreased aggression we've described. Comparisons to the genomes of our less domesticated ancestors, the Neanderthals, reveal mutations within these genes that likely cause this level of distinction throughout the population when it comes to aggression. How peculiar. Among modern humans, dysfunction of this gene can lead to Williams-Buren syndrome. It is characterized by developmental delays, smaller skulls, smaller teeth, baby-like features, and you guessed it, extreme friendliness. Hold on a moment. Did you say baby features? You're right. Sorry about that. Up until this point, we've solely tackled domestication as a change in behavior. But there are physical impacts as well. Some that Belay have noted include floppy ears, curly tails, and shorter snouts, effectively making the domesticated foxes more neotenic or baby-like. But if many of his selecting for behavioral characteristics, physical ramifications seem like a concerning side effect. There must be something larger here at play. David, you are absolutely correct. We should bring in an expert. On it. Your call has been forwarded. What's this now? Oh, um, I couldn't get an expert for this segment, so I'm referencing my biology notes from when I learned about it in class. What a travesty. Why don't I give it a go? Knock yourself out. A 2005 study of zebrafish connected reduced levels of aggressive behavior in adulthood to the inhibition of neural crests of cell migration while the fish were still embryos. But what are these neural crest cells? Biologists from East Carolina University define neural crest cells as a group of cells that arise during embryonic development. They play a critical role in the formation of many different tissues and structures in the body. The carefully orchestrated migration of these cells gives rise to cranial and spinal nerves, adrenal glands, facial bones and cartilage, and even pigment cells of the skin and hair. Oh, remember to talk about the pigment cells. The proper migration of neural crest cells dictates the proper placement of pigment cells that provide color to tissues like skin and hair. Is this why the fox coat color began to change when they became less aggressive slash more domesticated? Precisely. One feature of the domesticated foxes was the presence of white patches at the ends of their tails and paws. The neural crest cells never made it to their destination. They never did, not fully at least. And this is characteristic of all domesticated animals. Dogs and cats and horses and cattles and foxes 
All have some individuals with these white patches or floppy ears that aren't seen in their wild counterparts. Here, David, you're an expert. Name one animal in the wild with floppy ears. The elephant. Great. Now name another. See? Let's think about it like this. When you set out with the goal of domesticating an animal, what are you trying to do? Decrease aggression. Perfect. But what if this aggression is somehow correlated to these neural crest cells? Now, when you say give me all the friendly foxes, what you're asking for are all the foxes with improperly migrated neural crest cells. And the unintended consequence of the selection process is the animals with less aggression also have fewer neural crest cells in their ears, skin, and teeth. You know, fossil records do indicate that human teeth have been shrinking over the past few tens of thousands of years. Just saying. That's definitely something to think about. I'd also like to point out that decreased aggression is on one end of the spectrum for domestication. We're also looking at decreased fear response. Imagine every time you went to milk a cow, it scurried away in fear. If you recall, David mentioned adrenal glands are affected by neural crest cell migration. Adrenal glands play a critical role in fear and stress response. In a research paper published by Rangham and colleagues, he points out that decreased adrenal function and in turn reduced stress hormone is characteristic of domesticated species. This is because, like aggression, decreased fear response amounts to a level of tameness. Referencing my last example, a tame cow that allows you to milk it is similarly domesticated to a less aggressive dog that won't attack you. So domestication decreases fear and aggression. You got it. These physical changes and the overall tameness of domesticated animals is referred to as domestication syndrome. The hypothesis for this syndrome posits that domestication involves the selection of individuals with reduced fear and aggression, which are traits believed to be controlled by the same genes that regulate the development of neural crest cells. Since these cells are crucial for the development of the nervous system, cranial facial structures, and pigment cells, we see changes there as well. Incredible. Yep. And guess who coined the term domestication syndrome? Who? Dmitry Belayev. You're pulling my leg. I swear. You see, Belayev didn't just love fur coats. He actually didn't care for them at all. He was, in fact, a man of science, a geneticist to be exact. He had been ruminating on this radical theory of his that said genes governed the behavior of domesticated animals. And under the guise of a fur farm, he was able to test his theory. That cheeky genius. So, the domestication of humans. While the information I have provided you with is an interesting argument for human domestication, there is no universal consensus regarding the idea. While some anthropologists and evolutionary biologists have suggested that humans themselves have undergone a form of self-domestication, leading to reduced fearfulness, increased social behavior, and changes in physical appearance, this theory is still the subject of debate among scholars. It's also important to note that these are generalizations of what has happened over time. Yes, there are aggressive foxes, dogs, and humans. Yes, there are cows that will still run away if you try to milk them. Of note are these general trends I've presented you with and how scientists have reasoned they come together. In this episode, I've covered the evidence that supports the domestication syndrome theory. By extension, the theory suggests that our species has evolved to be less aggressive and more cooperative allowing us to form complex societies and work together towards common goals. What we do know is the theory highlights the complicated interplay between biology and culture and the evolution of our species and the development of our very own society.
This concludes my episode on the domestication syndrome hypothesis. And if you haven't already figured, we couldn't actually afford to get Sir David Attenborough in this episode. It is quite said that I'm not the real David Attenborough. Sorry about that. It is okay. I am not sentient and thus indifferent. Everything you heard from him was AI generated. So be sure to check out State of the Pod's episode on AI art and its ethics, which came out this season as well. Special thanks for this episode goes to the Milstein Lab and the Investigative Biology Department for our recording equipment and software. I'm your host, Sasha Smalls, and this has been State of the Pod. Hope to see you soon. Thanks for listening. Bye.